wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to another episode where I get to introduce you to a wonderful guest who has overcome the darkness. Her story will inspire you. Please remember to connect with Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where you can leave your thoughts, comments and questions. I'll introduce my guest in just a moment. Alcohol ruled every piece of Sherry Hoppin's life for 10 years. As part of dealing with her addiction, she found herself on an incredible journey that we'll hear about in a few moments. Sherry authored the book Sober Cycle and has an online community named She Surrenders, which is helping others beat addictions of all kinds. It's an honor to have her join me on Bleeding Daylight. Sherry, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me, Rodney. It's an honor to be here. We tend to have a a mental picture of those with an alcohol addiction, yet more often than not, those battling alcohol don't fit that picture at all. Tell me about what life was like for you back in those days. So back in the days when I was drinking, I didn't have a drinking problem for years, I would say. I drank like a normal person, or so I thought I did. There wasn't any red flags. There is a history of addiction in our family, so... I maybe should have paid attention a little bit more to that, but I drank socially until I was, I think it was around 30. Maybe I started to drink a little more than I should. When I was in my mid thirties, mid to late thirties, I would say there started to be some comments from friends of concerned about my drinking or talk to my husband. And that drives you basically, or at least it did me. And I hear from a lot of other women that it does too. You start drinking alone because your drinking is no longer approved per se of by your friends, but they're still drinking. You know, everybody else is still drinking and you think you can just go out and moderate. Like if everybody's watching, I'll just, you know, be able to moderate. But the truth is, is when you start drinking, you lose the ability to moderate. So it just became a life of secrecy and drinking, hiding, disposing of the empties and the bottles and stopping at different liquor stores. So I wouldn't um, be in the same one two days in a row. Drinking became everything. Everything in my life had to focus around when I could drink, how I was going to drink. And towards the end, it wasn't even if I was going to drink. It was just, how is that, how am I going to make this happen? So I felt like I had a double life. I worked in ministry. I worked at a Christian pregnancy care center. I was active in church, football mom, all the things. But nobody knew my secret because A, I was so ashamed, and B, I was going to fix it eventually. So there was this sense that you still had control over it and you could stop at any time if you chose to. You were just not choosing to right at that time. And you, <laughs> you, were, you were bringing up a family at this stage as well. So because you had made the drinking secret, most people would never have had any idea, would they? No. And we live in a pretty small community. After the book came out, I've had a lot of people say to me, I had no idea, whereas When you're in it, you think everybody is suspicious and everybody knows that, especially like at church, 
church was hard because I felt like so many people knew, but nobody was asking if they could help. And did I really want them to? Probably not. But I just, it was such a lonely feeling. And and that's on me because I was the one hiding it. I was the one that made sure nobody knew. At the end of the day, it wasn't just my battle, even though I thought it was, because I was crumbling everything else around me. As far as our family structure, especially my husband and I's relationship, I was losing friends. But I stubbornly denied that this was from alcohol. And that's just another one of the lies you tell yourself. So your husband certainly knew about this and was trying to encourage you to do something about it. Tell me about the time that your wider family became aware of what was going on for you. Tell me about that night. This was a couple of years before I actually got sober. I believe it was Christmas 2009. We were at a Christmas party at my dad's house. So it was one of our immediate family Christmas parties. So I drank too much. I drank before we left. There was a alcohol out as usual, you know, at my at my dad's house and that had never been a problem before. So when nobody was looking because I had told my husband I wouldn't drink, I just threw shots back. Honestly, the last thing I remember is uh, waking up in our bed the next morning and knowing that something was very, very wrong. I blacked out while I was there and passed out and apparently said some pretty hurtful things that I have no memory of. In front of everyone there, I was a daughter, a wife, a mother, an aunt, all the things. And it a small Christmas party it must have been horrifying to to witness this. And, you know, the next day I tried to make amends with everybody. And I, I think that I probably still could have gotten away with, if it wasn't for my husband, um, gotten away with saying, I have no idea why that happened or blamed it on medication or I didn't eat enough. But I told them the truth that my husband and I had, you know, been trying to add up some sober days for me. And I'd been going to meetings a little bit here and there. And I kind of came clean. I told everybody what they wanted to hear. I have a problem. I'm getting help. In my mind, the real problem was, is I really screwed up and I need to figure out how to hide this better. And I need to become a better liar because I will quit eventually, but just not right now. You mentioned there was a bit of history of addiction within your family, but can you see, were there any other incidents within your past that was driving you to drink or was it just that matter of someone who couldn't handle alcohol well? You know, there's been hurtful things along the way. My my parents got divorced when um, I was in high school. That was really hard. I didn't go out and party because of it, you know, but I do remember that was a hard time. Um, The one that sticks out the most is when I was 28, my younger brother was killed in a car accident. He was killed with his best friend and alcohol was involved in that crash. They were responsible. In my mind, that that's setting up the, the perfect stage to become an alcoholic. And I often wonder, why didn't I start drinking then? But I do know that when I did drink pretty much from that point on, I drank to get drunk. And that was it. And whether that was once a week or once a month, when I drank, I drank hard. It was quite a few years after that, like I said, my mid to late thirties before, you know, it became a problem deemed worthy of the, you know, the label of alcoholism. You 
started towards some sort of stopping this alcoholism in a very unusual way. Someone suggested to you that you take part in an event and you just couldn't find your way out. Tell me a little about that. (laughs) Yeah, so that was the Christmas that I just talked about was 2009. So now we're into 2010 and it's spring and I'd been, you know, a few sober days here and there, a few not so good sober days or not non-sober days, I should say. And my husband went on a a business trip and he was going to be gone for 10 days. And he asked me if I would promise him that I would not drink while he was gone. I said, I promise you. And we still had, um, our youngest was still at home and said, I promise I won't. And I didn't, but I was miserable. One morning I was asked if I would come in and help out at the pregnancy center I used to work at because they were short staffed. And I thought, what else am I going to do? So I went in while I was there. I took some messages to the director and he looked at me and said, where have you been hiding? And I just burst into tears and kind of told him everything like a confession. And I'd never done that before. I, you know, I retracted quickly. Like I'm in, like I'm quitting, you know, like I quit last Christmas, that type of thing. But so I was still not being totally honest with him. He just looked at me and I thought he was going to give me a verse or pray over me or something. He was a pastor and he just said, you need to do the ride for life. And to tell you what the ride for life is, um, it's a fundraiser for the pregnancy center. And the previous year, this director and four or five other men rode their bikes from Michigan to Baltimore, Maryland, to where our conference was. I remember that previous year when I was working at the pregnancy center, people would say, have you heard from them? How are they doing? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And in my mind, I'm like, what a bunch of idiots. That sounds terrible. Who does that? And here I am being asked to do the same thing, except this year it was going to, that year it was going to be from Michigan to Texas. I didn't own a bike. I was not in shape at all. There were so many reasons that I said no and tried to resist that. And that next four or five nights while my husband was still gone, I would wake up like at three in the morning, which happens a lot when you're drinking and you wake up at three and you've got sweats and anxiety, your alcohol is leaving your body. And, but now I'm getting woken up at three, 4 AM and I would just lay there and think, why am I awake? I don't have, you know, I'm not drinking. Good sleep is one of the beautiful things that happens almost immediately when you quit drinking, at least for me, it did. But it was a God thing because every night I would wake up and I would be like, why am I thinking about that bike ride? And because you should do it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. So I'm having this argument with myself, but I really believe it was an argument with God. So when my husband came home, I waited a couple days and he asked me, he said, did you drink while I was gone? And I said, no. I said, but something even crazier happened. <laughs> and I told him about this invitation to do this bike ride. And I was telling him in the, in the manner of like, you're not going to believe this. This is crazy. Like, why would I? And he interrupted me and he said, you're doing it. I honestly thought he was going to be my out. Like he was probably so over all my harebrained ideas and, you know, big dreams, but still drinking. And I said, are you kidding me? And he said, no. He said, we've talked. You told me you wanted to be healed 
physically, emotionally, and spiritually, that you are just empty in all three of those categories. He said, I can't think of a better way to be filled. You're going to be physically riding your bike and you're going to be emotionally invested in this. And spiritually, you're going to spend some time with some really good people uh, while you're on the road. Any fight I had was quickly dismissed right down to, I didn't even own a road bike. So the next day that started and I had 51 days from the time that I accepted to the time that we left to train. And that summer was the hardest summer of my life, but it was a turning point. And I left on August of 2010 for that first ride for life from Michigan to Texas. And we'd like to believe that you took those 51 days and you trained well and you stayed sober and everything was great. But even the days immediately before, I guess the nerves got to you and you thought, I'll return to my old friend of alcohol, didn't you? Oh, yes. I can't tell you how many times I did that. That was probably one of my worst times that I did that because about two, three days before we were supposed to leave, I bought some alcohol and then I bought some more when that was gone. And I I went on a three-day bender before we left. That was really, really bad. And when we left, I was so hungover. I was miserable. I was shaking. I was sweating. And I just kept thinking, does anybody know? Does anybody know? And I, these people were new in my life. I had a fresh opportunity with this group of people. They didn't know my past. They didn't know anything about me. That was on the line already. And I, I already loved riding with them. We trained over the summer. They accepted me and all my handicaps with, you know, open arms. They were like, Hey, we'll just do the best we can. And, you know, things like that. They were awesome. And I did stay sober more that summer leading up to the training, leading up to the actual day that we left because I, I didn't want to hold them back. I had these training rides. You had a quota of miles you had to get in for a week. And, and so most of that summer was pretty good. And I think that my husband and I both looked at this ride for life as the thing that was going to save us. He didn't know I was hungover like that either when we left. He, he was suspicious but didn't ask any questions. Just wanted me, I think he just wanted me to get on that bike and go to Texas and be off his plate for 10 days. So how did the, the ride actually work out for you? Getting on the bike, having to do the sort of physical work on a bike that you'd never done before. Tell me about that ride. Well, the first couple of days were rough. I was basically detoxing the first 300 miles that we rode. I had not made it any easier on myself by doing that. But as the ride went on, I started to feel better. Other people are starting to feel really beat up, but there is nothing that compared to the day that we left how I felt then. So I loved it. It was hard physically. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It was a God thing that kept my legs going around because there's no way I should have been able to do that. I'd call my husband at night and I would just beg him to come get me from, you know, I'm like, Hey, what took us 10 hours? You could be here in two hours, you know? And he would say, Nope. And either hang up on me or, you know, just say, Hey, just do the best you can. But about midway through, I realized I didn't want to leave the ride. It was very safe on the ride. I didn't think about drinking on the ride. And I remember thinking with 
every hill, because there was a lot of hills, with every hill that we climbed, I was just crushing these plastic bottles of whatever liquor came to mind. I was just crushing it because you're pushing down on your pedal so hard. And dangling in front of me was this, just this beauty of, I don't know, like you think of like a horse with a carrot, that kind of thing. And I can't even really describe what it was, what I was focusing on, but it would be my family and it would be all the things in life I've wanted to do. And there were, there was no visions of me sitting in my closet drinking. It was beauty. And I just kept thinking, if I just keep riding, if I just keep riding, I will keep crushing the alcohol and I will keep riding towards the beauty. And that's pretty much what I did the whole entire time. And I believe you had some different conversations with God along the way as well. <laughs> some that were, were about the beauty of creation and others were just, why am I doing this? Yeah, I talk about that in the book a little bit. And I actually had that open because I just used it in a, in a speaking engagement. But yeah, my morning, I was never going to drink again. And I would pray in the morning, just like I had done on my training. But in the morning, it was, it, thank you for the beauty. Thank you for each and every person. Be with my husband and children. Thank you for their love and support. Help my desire to stay sober, always be as strong as it is in this moment. But in the afternoon after, it was usually 100 degrees. No matter what, we couldn't get a tailwind. I don't know why, but we were always, it was always hard. And so my afternoon prayers were more, dear God, bring some clouds to hide this blasted hot sun. I mean, it's pretty, but it's freaking hot. And, and no more hills. I'm tired. I'm beaten up. Why did you think I could do this? Take away the pain I've been sitting on for the last 90 miles. If you make it go away, I promise I'll never drink again, or at least until I get home and bless my family. Speaking of my family, do they even care? They don't give a crap about me. I'm sure they're happy I'm gone and they're all caught up in their own worlds. And that was pretty much how it went. <laughs> kind of a rant. <laughs> so I just, you know, God is our father. And I just, as a parent, I imagine this father just looking down, just shaking his head going, how many times have you tried to make deals with me? And how many times has that worked for you? You know, but yep. I still said it. So when it's all good, we thank God. And when it's all bad, we blame God. So you're taking part in this ride. You're feeling better as you go along. But we know that just one bike ride is not going to make the difference for you. It obviously made a, a big part of that difference. But what was it like? The sense of accomplishment at the end, but then this idea of having to go back to normal life. Yeah, I was gone for two weeks and every day, all you had to think about was paddling one stroke after another. You didn't have to think about food. You had, you know, you were, there was a leader. I didn't have to worry about where we were going. There was no expectations other than paddle. So to come home and, you know, the hype is over. She really did do it. You know, it was like, I'm sure there was a lot of people that didn't think that I was going to, but without a plan. I came home with no plan other than I'm not going to drink. And that's just not enough. Um, I was able to quit not drink for two weeks and not tell anybody. So I can do this in my own strength within a, a very short time after I was home um, within a, I think it was within a day I was drinking again. And I was so, I was devastated. I was angry with myself, but I was devastated because I thought this was over 
the timeline of the last six months or so had been no plan, plan to ride, ride the bike for the ride for life, come home, you're not drinking, the end. And it's definitely not how it works because I went on to do that ride for life three more times after that, still being in active alcoholism. Granted, I never drank right before we left like I did before. I did learn a little something along the way. But up to when I got sober, um, I did a, three more of them. And then I did three more after that as a, as a sober woman. What was the turning point for you after you had tried this detox of being on a bike for a couple of weeks, these many times, and then suddenly something must have turned for you to say, I need to get help. I need to let this secret out. What was that turning point for you? The turning point, we'd been there, you know, many times that, you know, one time I was sober for, you know, six months, nine months. I mean, God was working in me. I have no doubt about that because we were kind of, and I say we, because my husband was very closely involved. Um, I was started to be more honest with him and, um, but it, it wasn't all the way. It wasn't commitment to, I was hanging on to this hope that for some reason I was going to be different than everybody else. And I was going to be able to, you know, drink socially, slap my hand. I learned my lesson. I, I won't ever drink like that again, but it never, ever went that way. And I knew, I knew that that was the case, but yet I kept trying. Now it's 2013, just completed my fourth ride for life. The ride for life in September that August, right before that, our, our son and daughter-in-law, they got married um, in our front yard, 300 people, lot, you know, stayed sober. And I came home from that last bike ride. And I, I just remember feeling like just so sad, so sad that this keeps happening. I would just look at this liquid and just think to myself, that liquid in that bottle or in that glass has the power to destroy my life. And so I, and I was talking to God about it more. And one day my husband was going to be gone for the entire weekend. I was going to be alone for the weekend. I think he was to the point too, where he was like, it's up to you what you do on the weekend. He, he was pretty over it. But that weekend I drank and um, different things happened that I wasn't getting drunk for one thing, but I was getting scared. I believe I had alcohol poisoning that weekend and I panicked and I called a friend her and another close friend came over that day and stayed with me all day until they were confident that I was going to be okay. They made me promise I was going to tell my husband and promise that I was going to get help. And there's some other things that happened in between there that I talk about in the book, but it was basically kind of the line in the sand moment where I was beat up. I, w I wasn't ready to do the sober thing, but I was ready to just be done fighting, if that makes any sense. The day that I did, I remember just crying and just saying, I surrender. And I always struggle with how to get this across because if I was listening to me and I was struggling with alcohol, I would come away with, oh, God just took it from her. The end. Amen. She's got a beautiful life. And it wasn't that way. I did give it up. What changed in me was I knew I was never going to drink again. And I was very convicted of that, but I wasn't jumping around going, yay, I'm never going to drink again. Life's going to be so much better. 
I was sad. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to do this? But it wasn't an option anymore. And further discussion with my husband, some conditions were were set when I said, I told him what happened over the weekend and he was devastated that I had put myself in that situation and my friends. And that day though, that was it. November 6, 2013, other than me giving it to God, and that's where the, then the work started. But that was my defining moment. I was just done. I was at the end of myself. I was sick and I tried everything in my own strength and it wasn't working. So I believe that when I told God I was ready, he snapped me up just like that. And as you say, it continues to to be a battle after that, but that was the defining moment for you. And these days, life is very different, and you're actually helping other people who are dealing with their own addictions, not just with alcohol. Tell me some of that story, how you're helping others with recovery. I started a ministry, I think it was in 2015, shortly. It was about two, yeah, I was about two years sober, and I was asked to speak at a local church, which terrified me because I didn't want to speak at a local church. I didn't want to make this public. But I, when I surrendered, I said to God, I'll do whatever you ask me to. And it was a really good friend that asked me to speak. And she knew that. She knew that I had said that. And she said, I think it's time, Sherry. You know, you've got to start talking to other women because there's more women like you. So I did. And it was about... I think maybe 30 women, 40 women. And by the time I got home, which is a very, very short distance, I had four emails from women that were crying out for help. Women active in the church, women that love the Lord. As a Christian, you take that shame and guilt to a whole nother level because not only have you let down your family, yourself, you've let down God. And it's pretty heavy. From there, just talking to a few women, you know, back and forth emails. I started a a ministry called She Surrenders. And on the website, there's different things to read. There's a little over 200 blogs now, I think. There's a podcast. And we also have um, some private communities called Joyful Surrender, where we have Zoom meetings and we have a forum that we talk in all the time. I need help or look what I came across or, hey, watch this movie, read this book, or I'm hurting today. Is anybody available. It's beautiful because it's exactly what I wanted when I was first getting sober. And I said, you know, God, where's my people? Where are the other women? Where are the other choir directors drinking in their closet? I feel like he said, you know what, you're going to have to find them. So that's what I started doing. And together we have just made this beautiful community that keeps growing. We recently had a retreat actually with I call my core members. There's six other women that have been with me a long time and have um, gotten some long-term sobriety. And together we are, I just feel like we're doing this with God and we're unstoppable because we want to get the word out that women of faith, there's more of you and you already have the best tool in recovery. And that's God. I think the thing that comes through all of this is the whole secrecy angle that you try to keep this a secret And if everyone else is doing the same thing, you're all thinking the same thing, which is, I'm alone in this. I'm the only one Mm -hmm. battling this. 
it must be amazing to find out that there are other women that are battling this and you can actually walk this journey together. Is is that often a key for some women, realising that there are others out there that are battling the same things as they are? Oh, for sure. I think that community and fellowship with other women that know exactly how you feel. And I, I use this example a lot. When, when my brother was killed and we were at the funeral home, my stepsisters came and who I, who I love and I adore them, but they had lost their brother, ironically, only a couple years before that. But when they walked in, I wanted them. I wanted to talk to them. I wanted the, I wanted to grieve. I wanted to cry on them. It was because they knew how I felt. Nobody knows how it feels unless they've walked in your shoes. And it's the same with this. As much as my husband would try to understand or a girlfriend, if you're not in it, you you don't understand. You don't know. And I think that's why communities like AA work so well because the first thing you find out is that you're not alone and all the stupid things you do, you're not the only one that's done them. I wanted a community that was for women and for women that wanted to recover using their faith, where we can talk about God freely and not worry if we're going to offend somebody by saying what our higher power is. There's none of that. It's not a place either where you come where I want to lead you to God. It's, it's kind of different. Not that I would ever exclude anybody, but your faith is already there. Your love and trust for the Lord, that's something you know, and that never goes away. I accepted Christ into my heart as a very young child, and he never left. That's what we talk about a lot. He's always there. That is the solution. There's a lot of different ways to recover and a lot of wonderful tools And one of the biggest ones being community, but with using God in your recovery and relying on God for your recovery, it's kind of like you've got the, the secret sauce, the icing on the cake and that verse in the Bible, you know, with with God on our side, how can we lose? But you have to want to be on that side. It's not going to work if you're not willing to be totally committed. We even see in Scripture, Paul talking about the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he's got that battle going on. Why do you think it is that so many Christians try and portray this image that I do everything I want to do, I don't do the things I don't want to do? We try and project this this perfect life. And yet right there in Scripture is proof that we can't do it alone. Why do you think that is? Well, in the case of addiction and women, which is what I'm most familiar with, I think it's because as women of faith, you're a wife, often a mother, whatever your world is, at the end of the day, you have to hold yourself a little bit higher because you are a Christian, not because you're pompous about it or, you know, being a Pharisee, but because people are watching you. One of the lines I would say to my kids when they were little is, you know, you just have to wear Jesus on your forehead. And when other people see you, I want them to see Jesus in you. That's as Christians, that's what we're, we're called to do. If we let down that front, that facade that we have spent so much time building, so no one sees the real truth. If we let that down, someone's going to see that we're not the perfect Christian. I think that we're afraid of that more than anything else. 
And that's why I think there's more secrecy when it comes to um, being a woman caught in addiction, a Christian woman. I often say that I would go to church on Sunday and I would sit in the pew of shame because I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed in front of, because not only was I ashamed in front of anybody else, because I thought the whole world knew or the whole church, God knew. And I'm, I'm sitting in church just staring at this cross and thinking, I don't belong here. If that isn't an isolating feeling or an isolating thing that leads you to the action of, you know, just keeping your mouth shut one more week, I don't know what is. It takes a lot of courage to say, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. And the first place you're not going to do it is church. What sparked the idea for you to write the book Sober Cycle? When did you start to think, I need to put this down on paper? (laughs) Well, I have always wanted to write. I've always liked writing. I had no idea what I was supposed to write. I had a big imagination. And so I always thought I was supposed to write fiction and something entertaining. And I have a sense of humor. And I, I just thought, well, here we are on the other side of addiction. And I think God gave me a story because there's a lot of stories out there, a lot of good books about recovery and, you know, people's personal stories, but there isn't many from the the Christian wife and mother working in a pregnancy center and that rides her bike to Texas to try and get sober. So kind of had a little twist on it more than just the average. I drank too much. So I wanted other women to know though, that you're not alone. Recovery is possible and you can do, you can do all things. You can do all things in Christ who gives you strength. And I wanted a woman to be able to read this and just have those aha moments that I did that, oh my gosh, there's someone else like me. I'm not, I'm not the only one doing these crazy, awful things. And I'm not the only one that no matter how desperate I am, I can't quit. That's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to give people hope. My husband and I um, wrote the last part of the book together because we want to give other couples hope too. Like, don't walk away. You know, she's worth waiting for. He's worth waiting for. And that addiction is more powerful than anything you're going to come up against because I think that addiction is spiritual warfare at its finest. And I believe that the devil's going to use it to his advantage in every way that he can. What's been the response to the book so far from people reading it wherever they may be? Have you had contact from people who say, ah, this this really ministered to me? Yes, that's been the most rewarding part about writing a book. You know, it's kind of hard to know how it's doing unless it's like zooms up to New York Times list, which it's not close to that, believe me. But I'm getting, I get something every, I just said this to someone not too long ago, every single day since the book came out last April, I have gotten some sort of affirmation of it helped me or I loved it or I'm giving it to so-and-so there's been something positive and um, it just went into its second printing. So that makes me know that it's doing well. All the reviews so far on Amazon are five star. I think that the response to the book has been everything that I ever hoped it would be. I pray every morning, not for more sales, not to be glorified. I don't pray for any of that. I just pray that this book 
ends up in the hands of those who need to read it. That's my simple prayer every morning over the book. I guess if I could chime in on the book as well and say, if you're looking for a textbook about how to get sober, this is not it. If you're (laughs) looking to read someone's true, honest story, this is definitely it. If you're looking for a a story that carries humour with it, but also that real understanding of what it's like, then this is it. I'm I'm absolutely loving the book. And I think that whether you're a a man or a woman, you're going to love this book. And I, I just... I can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's well worth grabbing and reading. And I think that whether you're facing any kind of addiction or know someone in addiction or not, it's still a great read. Sober Cycle is, a, is an excellent book. If people want to find Sober Cycle or want to connect with you through She Surrenders, what's the easiest thing for them to do? I would advise going to shesurrenders.com. And that's where you'll find me. And you'll also find all my social media links there on Instagram, Facebook. And also the book is on Amazon. And I also sell them through my website as well if you would like a personalized copy. So I would say that would be the easiest way would be to go to shesurrenders.com. If you want to talk to me, just hit contact and I will answer you. I will put links to the website on bleedingdaylight.net in the show notes there so you can grab that if you missed it. But Sherry, it has been wonderful to talk to you, to hear just a bit of your story. And there's more of that story in Sober Cycle, more of it at shesurrenders.com so people can head there. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Rodney. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.